Okay. Wonderful. Well, um, thank you so much, Dad. Really appreciate that. Um, if you want to get your Bibles out, we're going to be in Mark's Gospel today, Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. And before I begin, just to let the, the kiddies know, uh, if they do want to do some coloring, there are coloring books at the back, and there are felt tips, and there's a beanbag to sit on. If you like to sit on beanbags, I certainly do. It's in the back corner, and kiddies, that's your corner, so you can go chill out there if you want. Um, or not, it's completely up to you. You got it, Arjun, that's it. Brilliant, but you will, kiddies, have to just remember, uh, just to keep the voices on the D-low a little bit, because my brain just cannot concentrate with too many things going on. I am a male, and that means I can focus on one thing at a time, no more. So um, please be kind to me. So we're in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. We're continuing today our study through Mark's Gospel. And today's message, to be honest, on this parable alone, I could probably preach 10, maybe even 20 messages. So I'm going to do my very best to get everything uh, that I want to get in there preached today and get you out of here and into your uh, teas and coffees phase by 4 o'clock. So uh, we're going to be on it, and um, we're going to be, yeah, we, we're going to be blessed today, guys. We're going to be blessed. Um, awesome, awesome. Let's pray, and then we'll read the passage through. Father God, I, I want to thank you today for the freedom that we have, the freedom to gather together as your church. Lord, we know that this has always been such an important part of what it means to be a Christian, we know that from church history, saints would gather together on the first day of the week, going back way into the distant past, and they would encourage one another, they would sing together, they would hear the scriptures read, and that they would come away from that place more encouraged to live for Christ in the week. So Lord God, we pray that today becomes a launch pad, a launch pad, a springboard for what you're going to take us into in the coming week. Lord, we know through your word in Ephesians, it says you've prepared good works for us to walk in. So let today be a springboard. Let today be um, a, a, something that catapults us into this week and into walking in those good works. And Lord, I pray that as I preach the message today, that you would let your word go forward as it is, Lord, not as, as I would want it to be, not with all of my ideologies kind of like latched on, but Lord, let your word go forward unchecked. And Lord, may it be an encouragement to all of your beloved children here listening today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Guys, I'm just so excited before we begin um, about where God has taken us. I don't know about you, but um, this last 18 months has been very challenging in many different ways for our family. And I know for many of you as well, it's been an intense season of, of challenges. But I am so encouraged by where I see the Lord guiding us as a small fellowship together. I, I really do sense that God's hand is on all of us to be a church that 100% honors the Spirit of God, that believes in the gifts of the Spirit for today, that believes that God is giving people unction to prophesy, that he is working amongst his people to work gifts of healing and also gifts of hospitality and all sundry ways that the Holy Spirit works. We are 100% for that. And at the same time, we're 100% standing on the inerrant, infallible word of God. That we're a church that loves doctrine. We're a church that preaches the sovereignty of God over all things, as well as the love of God for all. Lord, I'm, you know, I'm so excited by where the Lord has taken us in the past 18 months. And I'm really excited to see where he takes us in the coming year and a half as well. So it's been a journey. I want to encourage you guys on one hand, uh, to be seeking God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to be seeking God for his gifts. The Bible says, earnestly desire the gift of prophecy. And so because of scripture, we're to go after 
the Holy Spirit. We're to seek him while he may be found and, and we're to exercise these gifts. And I want to encourage you, don't give up. You know, if, if you're hungry to see more of him in your life, don't give up in prayer. Keep going after the Holy Spirit in prayer. And then the second hand, I want for us to be a church that's marked by the scriptures, that loves the word of God. And this is where we're going to go today. This is going to be some of our subject matter this afternoon. The word of God, I want for us to be a church that just loves doctrine. And I, I, I really believe that this is what the Lord is going to do. In these last days, he's going to bring together his church, word and spirit. For too long, there has been this huge divide between churches that consider themselves, we are church, we're a church of the word, and we don't want any of your wackiness here. And then over here, you have, well, we're a spirit-filled church, and unless you speak in shukaraba, all of that, you can't come over here, we don't want any of your crusty doctrine. You know what? It grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit. We're a church that believes word and spirit together. And I'm excited for where he's taking us. Amen. Praise God. All right, let's, let's read then Mark chapter 4. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up. But since it had no depth of soil, when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but because of the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, they enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Thanks be to God for your word. Now this parable today is what is known as a diagnostic parable. A diagnostic parable. What does that mean? Well, a diagnosis, of course, is what you get from your doctor. It's what you will get if you go to see Dr. Alomalei or your own GP and you're experiencing pain and symptoms. Your doctor will make what is known as a diagnosis on the basis of your symptoms. They will tell you what the root cause is. That's what a diagnosis is. It says, here is the problem. Here's the root cause of all of these symptoms that you are experiencing. And on the basis of the diagnosis, the doctor will then prescribe a treatment. Now, of course, let's say, for example, that you, if your doctor makes a, a wrong diagnosis or a misdiagnosis of your symptoms, what might happen is 
that they might prescribe you the wrong treatment. And one of two things might happen. If the wrong prescription is prescribed, number one, it may not help your symptoms at all. It may do nothing to relieve you of the pain you're experiencing. Another thing that might happen, which is worse, it might make them worse. Or it might give you other symptoms that you are now experiencing because of the wrong prescription. So you can see how important a correct diagnosis is, certainly in your physical health. Well, the same is true of spiritual things, true, too, rather. If we, as Christians, have a misdiagnosis for why it is that people don't all believe the gospel, if we have the wrong diagnosis, you can immediately see how we then might also make a wrong prescription. And this is what we're going to look at today how important it is to have Jesus' diagnosis of this particular issue. Now, something that might have been being brought to Jesus at this time, a question that might have been asked to him, or that, that, that was being kind of gossiped about in the crowd listening to him, they might have been saying something like, listen, if this guy really is the Messiah, if this Jesus of Nazareth truly is the promised Messiah, and he really is preaching the inbreaking of God's kingdom, then why on earth doesn't everyone believe in him? Why doesn't everybody believe what this man is preaching? Why does some reject him? Indeed, why is it that some of the most intelligent people in all Israel reject him? Surely, if this really was the Messiah, the Son of God, they would be the first to believe in him. Why is it that some do not believe? And Jesus here makes a diagnosis of this particular issue. He speaks into this question in this parable. He makes a diagnosis. Now, why is this relevant to you here in the 21st century? Why is Pastor Graham talking about long words like diagnosis? I've never sat in a Sunday ministry and talked about a diagnosis. Why are we doing this? Well, because this question of why is it that all don't believe Jesus, that question is still every bit as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. This question is something that all of you must have a response for. Otherwise, you risk misdiagnosing the problem and therefore making a wrong prescription in your practice as a Christian. And I will show you how that might manifest and how that might look if you were to make a wrong prescription in this area. This question we're brought face to face with when we're doing the work of evangelism. How many of you have shared Jesus with anyone in your life before? You've told someone about Jesus. All of you, right, have shared Christ or have shared your faith, shared your testimony, and you're brought face to face with this question. If the gospel really is good news, if it really is what Paul says it is, the power of God unto salvation, then why is it that so many reject it? Why does that happen? We're going to be brought face to face with that when we witness to people. Why do some just seem disinterested? What's going on there? Now, some in the church, and many Christians in fact, have sought to make their own diagnosis of this problem. Right, okay, I see lots of people not believing this gospel message. I'm pretty sure I know why. And some have thought, some have made the diagnosis as being a problem with the sower. I know why people aren't believing. This is why people are not believing what they're preaching, that Christian. She's just not eloquent enough. That woman who's preaching the gospel, she hasn't got the intellectual depth to handle all of the objections that people have. And, and that's why people don't receive the gospel that she's preaching. 
Some believe the problem is with the sower. Not the soil, the sower. Or they might say something like, wow, that, that, that Dave Smirrell, you know, the problem is, he tells people about Jesus, but he's just not relevant enough. You know, he needs to use words like fam and blood and things like that. And then people would believe what he's preaching. If only he could get his language up to date, maybe get some new gear and use the local vernacular, then people might start believing the message that he's preaching. Others have misdiagnosed it as being a problem with the seed. The problem's not with the sower. The problem's not with the soil, it's with the seed, clearly. It's with the seed because the problem is the message that's being preached. Listen, no one wants to hear that they're sinful. Nobody wants to hear about a God who is the judge. Stop talking about hell. You really think people, as they're going around shopping, walking through Primark, want to be accosted by some psychopath talking about hell and judgment and fire? That's the problem. That's why people don't believe. They don't want to be told to repent. And telling them, to be honest, guys, this whole thing about there being only one way to God, a bit narrow-minded, isn't it? A little bit narrow-minded in the 21st century. Here's the problem. The message is out of date. We need to bring it up to the 21st century. Skim off all the negativity. Skim off all the judgment. Broaden it out. Make it way more inclusive. Guys, let's just preach love. Let's just preach love and inclusion. That's what's going to win people over, isn't it? The question is, win them over to what? Jesus actually never said that the problem lay with either the sower or with the seed. Now, when I say that, you understand me, that if you are going to dress like a total weirdo, <laughs> and you are going to yell, you're going to hell at people going through Primark, then maybe you need to work a little bit on your charitability and your love, but you understand the message here, that the problem, Jesus says, is primarily not with the sower or with the seed. The message is good. The message need not change. Jesus said the problem was actually with the soil. Or in other words, the problem was in the heart of those hearing the word of God. Jesus said we don't need to change the word of God in order to appease ungodly people. Jesus says we don't need to dress sheep up as goats in order to win converts. We don't have to make this church feel like a nightclub in order to get people in. We acknowledge that the change has to come not in the word, not in the manner in which we preach, but primarily in the hearts of those we're preaching to. That's where the change, Jesus says, has to come about. Now, the original Greek text in this passage is a bit clunky. It's, it's not a simple thing to read, but what is very clear is that Jesus begins and ends his teaching from verse 3 to verse 9 with exactly the same Greek verb, akouo or akouain, which means to hear or to listen. And he begins with the imperative, listen, hearken. Hear me. He uses that same verb a further four times in verses 14 to 20 as he explains the parable to the listeners. Now, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, you must first be somebody who knows how to listen. Before ever you're able to witness, before ever you are able to do things for God, in an active sense, you must first learn to be a passive receiver of his word. A good disciple of Christ is a good listener of God's word. I've got to understand that if I, if I want to bear a lot of fruit 
to God. If I want to live an extraordinarily fruitful life, then it's actually first got to begin with my passive obedience, sitting at his feet. Do you remember the other week when we were looking at the third chapter and Jesus has this question. It says, um, your mother and your brothers are outside. And he says, no, listen, here are my, mothers, my mother. Here are my brothers. Here are my sisters. What were they doing? Sitting at his feet, listening. Listening is such a crucial part of Christian discipleship, brothers and sisters. A good disciple is a good receiver before they were ever a good doer. Now today, as we listen to God's word, I want to encourage us to consider a few things, okay? I want you to, even if you note them down before I begin, I want you to consider these things. Number one, how well do you listen to Christ's words? Which soil best describes the condition of your heart? I want you to also note the condition of each soil. I want you to think about it in terms of of evangelism. Have you come across any people like this in your evangelism? Have you come across a stony-hearted man? You know? Have you come across somebody whose heart is like brick? Have you come across somebody who has immediately shown some interest in the gospel? Maybe they even started coming to church with you, but then something happened. Other things started kind of getting in the way and and they just kind of drifted away. Have you, have you met anybody like that? Do you have stories like that? I want you to think about those stories. I want you to think about how this teaching might impact and speak into your evangelism when you tell people about Jesus. How might this story impact your thinking and my thinking about discipleship? You know? Does it inform our understanding of who is truly saved and who maybe isn't yet, you know? Does it speak to that? So without further ado, let's, let's take a look at these four soils. The first soil that Jesus mentions is the wayside, or some seed fell on the road. You might have it the road or the wayside in your translation. Now, there is such a hardness, such a resistance in the heart of this individual that's represented by this wayside, the rope. Such a hardness in them that when they hear the gospel, it literally bounces straight off them. It bounces straight off them before they even have a chance to chew it over. They've rejected it and Satan comes, Jesus says, and he takes away the seed away out of sight and out of mind. I don't know if you've ever met anybody like this when you, you tell them about Jesus. It's just like suddenly, a brick wall, you know, and they don't want to know. They don't want to know. You know, they're all happy to talk about the weather, the football, your family, whatever else you've been doing. As soon as you mention Jesus, don't want to know. Not interested. This is the wayside. The wayside. The person with a heart like a brick road. This person is the natural man that's described by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. This person is somebody that Paul describes as being dead in trespasses and sins. That was all of us before we came to Christ. Dead in trespasses and sins. Walking in the futility of their mind. And listen to this, with their understanding darkened. They don't even give Christ a second thought. Jesus, his gospel, his church, it's all irrelevant childish nonsense and no amount of evidence will ever persuade them otherwise. There was a, a British journalist who passed away um, about a decade ago, a man called Christopher Hitchens. His brother's actually a Christian, Peter Hitchens. And this man was a journalist and was a very well-known atheist. He used to debate Christians. He even admitted in a debate that even if he were confronted with incontrovertible evidence for the existence of the Christian God, he still wouldn't believe in him. He still wouldn't believe. These kinds of individuals, they might actually believe they're rejecting the gospel because of a higher learning. They're just better educated than you. 
They they've, have evidence to the contrary, maybe. They're more sophisticated. But what Jesus says is that the real reason for their unbelief is not actually a lack of evidence. It's not a higher education. The real reason is their heart of stone. They have a heart of stone. Now that does not mean that we simply stop witnessing to them. And you'll see why as we work through this parable. I've had people who've had hearts of stone who I've had some of the best conversations with about Christ. So we don't stop. We still scatter the seed. But Jesus is saying, listen, there are going to be people that you meet like this. And to be honest, it doesn't matter how well you present the gospel. It doesn't matter how cool you look how many arguments you know for the existence of God, how caring and loving you are to them, their heart's like stone. It's going to bounce right off. And there's nothing more you can do other than rely on the Lord to do something miraculous. So let's take a look at the second soil, the rocky ground. Now to be clear, Jesus isn't talking about you know, rocky ground like you might have in your flower beds. Now, I have some rocky ground at the back of my garden. I think somebody must have had a a pavement back there or a rockery. And when I dig out that bed, I'll get big rocks and old paving slabs and things like that. But I can still plant stuff in there and the stuff still grows. That's not the kind of soil Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a thin layer of soil, a little veneer of soil which is covering a hard bed of rock. Now when the rocky-hearted man hears the gospel... Jesus says they actually receive it. They receive it. And not only that, but they receive it, he says, with joy. There's an overt, external, emotional response to the gospel. They love it. Though the joy joy that they show is real, and maybe even a powerful emotion, Jesus says that it ultimately proves to be superficial and short-lived. Now, sadly, I've known many like this in my walk as a Christian. I don't know about you. In my younger years, I remember one of my best friends uh, coming with me to a Christian meeting and hearing an evangelist preach. And we were both so impacted by this message. And we responded. We went and we had prayer. My friend was really deeply impacted and was very emotional, was crying, and something deep was clearly taking place. And for a few months, my friend would would come along to church with me. They'd come along to the midweek house group that we had. Um, But eventually, this sort of dried up and stopped happening. They stopped coming. And um, no matter how many times I invited them back, they they just had gone back to their old life. They'd moved on. And it was as if that encounter had, had never happened. You know, it was so hard and so strange. I don't know if you've had experiences like this. Now, what do we learn from that? What do we learn from that? Well, I, I think one thing we can learn from it is, and one thing I've learned over the years, is to be honest, is not to put too much stock into emotional responses. Now, please don't take this the wrong way, but I've learned over the years not to use emotional responses as a metric for somebody's spiritual maturity or, or their strength of conviction about something. Do you know what I mean? Um, I, I don't look for that first. However, um, I think in much of Western Christianity, uh, the reverse is true, uh, sadly. And I think often in Western charismatic Christianity, we actually play to the emotions. We actually try to kind of, you know, play a tune on people's emotions, get them to kind of feel something in in the emotions. And, And I actually think it's dangerous. I don't think it's neutral. I think it's actually dangerous. You'll note this. You know, the gospel preacher preaches a message and it's powerful. And as they begin to kind of pull the net in and start making an appeal, where's the, whoa, the keyboardist came from nowhere. And he's playing. And now there's a smoke machine and that's blowing some dry ice all over the place. And, you know, <laughs> I remember being in one meeting the once and um, it was a similar sort of thing. And there was a, uh, there was a smoke machine on the stage. And um, the person operating the smoke machine 
it had broken and they were sort of stamping on the button. And there was this poor 10-year-old or maybe 12-year-old kid in the front row just getting a mouthful of dry ice, you know. <laughs> you know, I think he was really getting ministered to. I think uh, <laughs> he went on his back, but it wasn't anything to do with the Holy Spirit, I don't think. Um, <laughs> no, he was fine. But um, often, you know, the lights, the music, the environment is often finely tuned to speak to emotions. And I say, I think this is dangerous. I think this is a problem. Because here's the issue. When we make an attempt to play with people's emotions, we can't be surprised when people run to the altar when the evangelist makes the altar call. And actually, they're not driven by any spiritual conviction, but they're actually driven purely by their emotions. They just feel something really strongly. And it's the perfect recipe for making false converts. You know, people that you think are Christians, but really what you got from them was just an emotional response. They just felt like it was the right thing to do in the moment. But they don't know Jesus. And this can lead to all kinds of miscommunications, and this can lead to lots of hurt and breakdown, actually. These types of people, the, the rocky soil people, um, they're very quick to believe. They're quick to say yes. Maybe even too quick. Maybe too quick. That might sound like a strange thing to say. Surely we, we should want people to say yes to the gospel straight away. But, but listen, God gave us all minds. right? He gave you all a brain. He doesn't want you to bypass that brain. Um, you know, like I think it was R.C. Sproul said, you know, it's possible as a Christian that you can know something without it ever reaching your heart. But it's impossible for anything to reach your heart without going through your head first, right? You should never switch off your brain. It's important to evaluate the core truths of what's being preached. We're not to be brainless followers. So, They spring up quickly, Jesus says. There's this kind of like shoot that comes out the ground quickly because there's no root. And these people, they're very often the first down to the altar. They get very excited. Before you know it, they've signed up to every course that's going. They're serving in every team. Uh, They seem to be racing ahead of everyone else. They're excited. They're pumped up. They've got nothing bad to say about church. It's all brilliant. And then suddenly, they're gone. They're gone. As quickly as they came, they're gone. You try contacting them, you try engaging them, inviting them back to church, but they moved on. It's gone. What happened? What went on? Trouble came. Trouble came. A little bit of affliction, maybe an illness. Perhaps a bit of financial trouble. Maybe one or two doubts began to come in. Maybe there was even a little bit of oppression or persecution. People started to laugh about them going to church. People in their family, their friendship, you go to church. That's ridiculous. All it took was a little gust of trouble and over they went. Why is that? Well, Jesus says there was no root in them. There's no root. That shoot that you saw springing up above the ground that represented their Christian life, all of their excitement, all of the emotions they felt in worship, you know, all of that, that was all there was. There was no hidden portion of their Christian life. And you know, when you look at a tree, yes, the stuff that's coming up above the ground is amazing, it's beautiful. You love to sit in the shade of that great tree, but you also understand that it's actually the hidden portion of that tree that you cannot see that is sustaining that life, that is keeping it standing upright, and this individual has no root in them. So the minute there's a breeze, over they go. Over they go. All it took was a little bit of that. Now, here's the deal. Many of these individuals... Jesus says they have no root. They weren't prepared for trial. 
They weren't expecting to have to suffer as a Christian. They were happy to be a Christian when it felt good, when it helped them feel really positive about life and about themselves. They're happy to be a Christian when it meant perpetual health. Now I'm a Christian, I'm always going to be well. I'm never going to get sick. God's a healer. I will be in supernatural health. I shall never be ill. How many of you understand we believe in healing in this church? We believe that God heals supernaturally. But listen, even the Apostle Paul got sick. The Apostle Paul preached to the Philippians first. Why? Because he was sick. It's going to happen. You will get ill. It doesn't mean that God isn't a healer. It just means we live in a broken, sinful world. These things will happen. But this individual wasn't expecting that. They were expecting happiness, financial prosperity, all of the good things and none of the bad. But brothers and sisters, that's not what Christianity offers That's what the cults offer. That's what the cults offer. Come believe in this and you'll never want for anything and you'll be rich. You'll be healthy. Everything will succeed for you. You'll be like Midas. Everything you touch will turn to gold. Brothers and sisters, that's not Christianity. That's the cults. And this is the problem. When the stony-hearted Christian begins to experience, or not a Christian, but the stony-hearted individual begins to experience trial, they're out. They're gone. The faith or the the confession of faith that they had withers and dies, it never took root. Now all this goes to show that simply praying a prayer or making a confession of faith or being an excited churchgoer or even having an encounter. None of those things actually necessarily make you a Christian. I see many people have encounters. Encounters that looked way more powerful than anything I'd experienced. And where are they now? They're they're nowhere. It's not to say they'll never come back, but they're in the world. R.C. Sproul said, no one was ever justified by a profession of faith. Yes, we're saved by faith alone, but true faith never comes alone. True faith is always accompanied by good works, by a prayer life, by a growing love of God's word. Let's quickly look at these final two soils. Let's look at the soil that has thorns in it. Who's this? Well, this is someone who's heard the word. They've received it. They have on some level accepted the gospel. Perhaps on a kind of intellectual level. You know, it makes sense to them. They understand and accept the gospel as somebody might accept that two and two equals four. God's word begins to take root in them. But then Jesus says the otherworldly concerns begin to come in and choke out their new Christian life. And eventually, their Christian life becomes completely unfruitful. Now, this individual might be someone who's had a high exposure to church. Maybe they've regularly attended church. Maybe they, lo- they watch a lot of you know, apologetics videos or theology videos. They're interested in truth and argumentation and stuff like that. It's something that they do. They, they, they understand these things. They enjoy it. Perhaps they know more about the Bible than your average churchgoer even. But what happens to this person is that at some stage of their their development, other voices in their world begin to get louder. They get more and more of their attention. Maybe things like their career or their family, their dreams, their ambitions. Not necessarily bad things things that are of the world, these things begin to get more and more and more of their attention. These things begin to take precedence over their Christian life. And now they can't really make it to church because they're too busy. They've they've got too much going on. Eventually, this individual loses interest altogether and abandons their walk with Christ. Now, even at this stage, 
when they have ceased doing anything that looks remotely Christian, they might even still think they are a Christian. But sadly, there's no fruit in their life to prove it. And just as Jesus inspects the fig tree on the road from Bethany and finds it fruitless, so will it be when he inspects their life. Let's take care and be guarded that we don't love the good things in this life too much so that they end up taking the place of Jesus over our life, over our energies. John Bunyan I don't know if you've heard of him, the, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress. He was a, an English pastor from Bedford who was in prison for 12 long years, taken away from his wife and his four children, the eldest of whom was blind, and it, it, it cut him to the core. And he was, the, the government told him, you can come out of prison, you're not allowed to preach though. And he said, so help me God, I will stay in prison until the moss grows on my eyelids, but I will not stop preaching. Imagine that. I don't know what I would do with that choice. You can come out and be with your family, but you can't preach. He, sto- he chose to stay in jail, and his family supported him in it for 12 years. And he said this concerning his wife and his children. Quote, I'm somewhat too fond of these great mercies. I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can properly be called a thing of this life even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyment, and all as dead to me and myself as dead to them. Wow. That is the life of Christian discipleship, to give God the glory for all of his kind, sweet mercies that we do not deserve and to enjoy them to the full level of enjoyment but not to let them go beyond the bounds of what we should feel about any worldly thing so that those things do not begin to rob us of our time with the Lord. Those things do not hamstring us from serving him, prevent us from our journey of discipleship. This is a very, very tough lesson, but but this is the road that we must walk as Christians. Finally, the, the good soil. The good soil, who is that? Well, these are those whose hearts are like good soil for the word of God to bear fruit. And these individuals who represent the good soil, Jesus says they don't just bear some fruit, they bear a miraculous amount of fruit well beyond their natural capacity. Isn't that amazing? 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Do you ever feel that fruitful? I don't. I don't always feel that fruitful, but but remember, brothers and sisters, you aren't always aware of what fruit you're producing. Only the harvester of the fruit really knows how much fruit your life is giving off. And many of us get discouraged, don't we? And we wonder whether we're really the good soil at all. We wonder whether we're truly Christians or whether we're fruitful. But this scripture is a promise to each and every one of you Christians that your fruitfulness will massively exceed your expectations. Isn't that wonderful? I want you to listen to this little story before we wrap up. In 1854, a Sunday school teacher, name isn't known, was out in Detroit looking for some shoes. He bumps into a 17-year-old boy in the shoe shop and begins to talk to him. In the end, the Sunday school teacher starts witnessing and telling him about Jesus. One thing leads to another, and this Sunday school teacher leads this 17-year-old boy to Jesus in the basement of this Detroit shoe shop. That young man's name was Dwight L. Moody, or D.L. Moody, the great 19th century evangelist as we know him now. A man named Wilbur Chapman came to one of D.L. Moody's meetings and was converted. He became a Christian. Later on, Chapman went to be an evangelist and in one of his meetings, a young man named Billy Sunday heard the gospel and gave his life to Jesus. Billy Sunday went on to become one of America's greatest evangelists. And in one of Billy Sunday's meetings, there was a young man named Mordecai Ham. What a name. Mordecai Ham, and Mordecai Ham 
was convicted of his sins and came to Christ in a Billy Sunday meeting. Later on, Mordecai Ham was doing a tour of the United States in a tent, and he began to preach in a tent one evening, and a young, tall man by the name of Billy Graham came forward and gave his life to Jesus at the end of Mordecai Ham's message. And Billy Graham went on to reach millions and millions of souls for Jesus in the last century. And I wonder if that Sunday school teacher had any idea of what he was doing when he started talking to that 17-year-old boy. I wonder if he had any idea of the fruit that the Lord was going to reap from that one decision. You'll never know the full impact of your life here in this side of eternity. You won't. But rest assured, it's going to be 30, 60, 100-fold more than you could possibly imagine. The sower sows the same seed, brothers and sisters, the same seed, and he sows it indiscriminately. He sows it not just on the good soil. He sows it on the rocky ground. He sows it on the thorns. He sows it on the road. He's so merciful, and you and I should be the same. Let's not look for good soil before we tell people about Jesus. Let's just shed that soil everywhere, just as the Lord did. He, didn't, he even sowed it in places that it didn't look naturally like any good could come of it. But he still sowed that seed. And that, for me, is an encouragement. Not to look for nice people before I share the gospel, but just to share it. Finally, I want to say this. What, different, sorry, what differentiates those who receive his seed and bear fruit and those who don't? What's the one difference well, Jesus says it's the condition of their heart. It's that some had good soil and some did not. But brothers and sisters, let me warn you of this. Before we start thinking boastfully that it's down to us, that we can cultivate the perfect environment in our hearts to make the word of God become efficacious, and that the Lord is looking first for those who will properly cultivate their heart environment. Let's look first at Jesus' words in verse 11. He says to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. The parallel passage in Luke 8 says his disciples asked him what the parable meant. And he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. And again in Matthew to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. What has been given? The ability to know. What does that mean? It means this. Without Christ, no one has the ability to know spiritual things about him. He is the one who gives the ability. Let's just ground that in Scripture. What are you talking about, Pastor Graham? 1 Corinthians 2 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. John 6, 65, Jesus says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to them by the Father, and 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And finally, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. So even that work of turning hearts from rocky, thorny places into fertile soil is something we have to look to God for. Only God can do this work. And if you know this afternoon that your heart is rocky, if there are thorns that are beginning to take root, call out to him today and ask him to till the soil of your heart, to pull out the rocks. And as he does, you'll find a deeper, stronger, more resilient faith ready to stand up against the storms that will come your way? Are there thorn bushes in your life this afternoon? Cares of the world that choke out all the time 
you've got. Call on God today. Ask him to come and weed your heart. Are there things that you might need to just lay down before him, just like Bunyan did while in prison? Or perhaps today, you've never really given the gospel a second thought. You thought of Jesus, but he's kind of an irrelevant figure to you. He's a symbol of a bygone age, and he's nothing more than that. But you now sense this stirring within. There's a strange curiosity you've never felt before. His message to you is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. Turn from your old ways. Turn from your sin, from your selfishness, and believe in him with all that you are, knowing that without him, your situation is hopeless. Without him, you stand condemned before a God who is holy. But through Christ, this holy, awesome God is a father, a loving father to all those who believe. Let's pray. If you want to stand with me, if you're able, if I could have Mike, are you able to come up and lead us in one final song? Lord, we pray that today as we have focused on, on the words of your son, Jesus, that you might come today as the great gardener and begin to weed out things in our lives that have uh, choked out some of our Christian vitality. Make us fruitful, we pray. For those of us who maybe have been thinking, man, my life just isn't very fruitful. I don't really know what good I do as a Christian. May you be encouraged by God's promise to you that you will bear 30, 60, and 100 times fruit. May you be encouraged by the story of that Sunday school teacher who just earnestly shared the gospel with that young man all those years ago. Perhaps if you're hearing the word today and, and you know that you have no root in your Christian life, that yes, there might be something on the outside, but there's no root. Let's pray that the Lord might come and begin to break up the hard ground in your heart today. Make room for the roots and that your faith might be strengthened and made more resilient and more vital. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mike.